You, he ruled the raging sea, the waves you arise, you still them. Verse 10, and you have broken Rahab in pieces as one that is slain. You have scattered your enemies with your strong hand. When you see this word Rahab in the, in the poetry verses, it's Egypt. Okay, it's a poetic word for Egypt. And I don't know why, but it's a poetic word for Egypt. And I just read that in every scholar I read. And if you have it in your notes, it'll be saying Egypt. So he says, you have, just, you have broken Egypt in pieces. And that went back, it started when they took him out of, the, out of uh, Egypt at the Passover. And all the 10 plagues that destroyed their economy and destroyed their gods. And when they crossed the Red Sea and God drowned their army in there. And then the next thing you know, when you go back into the right time period of Egypt's history, right after the, the Israelites leave, they get invaded and they get taken over for a period of time from, from a kingdom from the north. So from the, from the Syrian, Syrian area. And they were conquered for a period of time and were not a great nation. They were conquered. And then they came back and became a great nation again. So all of this. And, be, and just to, so you know, when, when, you, when you're talking to people, they go, well, the archaeologists don't believe that, Egypt, the, that the Jews were ever in Egypt. And that's because they're looking at the wrong time period. Because right. the verse says they leave the city of Ramses. So they automatically start looking when Egypt was strong again at the time of Pharaoh Ramsey. Okay. Ramsey just means city of the sun. Yes. Okay. So it doesn't need the Pharaoh named Ramses to be <laughs> where you start at. You go backwards about 400, year, three, four, 400 years to the time when it's obvious that people from, that, from the Palestine area lived in Egypt and there's a great big monument to Joseph that's still there to this day, but they don't say it's Joseph because it's too early for it to be Joseph because they're looking at Ramses. Okay, they're starting at the wrong place and they won't accept the evidence that says otherwise because they're at the wrong place. And this is something we need to be careful even as Christians that we don't get so stuck on what we believe that we won't look at other evidences and we've said this you know for years and millennia they said David never existed because they found no no monument or document with his name or Solomon's name on it and then in the 1940s they found the monuments with David's name on it and go oh there was a monarch called David there was a monarch called Solomon it was their golden age look at this information okay so we want to be very careful that we don't listen to those who say things do not have, have not happened that the Bible talks about. Because the Bible always sustains itself eventually. Yes. All right. So we look at it. And this got the church in trouble in the mid-1900s when they were trying to figure out how, how evolution fit into the Bible. Mm. Well, it doesn't fit into the Bible. That's why they couldn't figure it out. But they did all kinds of gymnastics and somersaults trying to find a way to force what was being taught as truth into the Bible. Instead of just saying, well, the Bible says God created in seven days, so therefore you're wrong. And then finding out that they were wrong, they tried to take a philosophy that was anti-Bible and thrust it into the Bible. We need to be very careful of all of this stuff. And this is something that is critical. 
when, when you think about Noah's Ark, for kids who grew up in church, if anybody grew up in a church, so often you see this little tub that couldn't hold anything with animals hanging out all, all the windows, and then they get, to, then they get to, to a school and somebody goes, well, that boat couldn't have held in. And you're right, that boat couldn't have held anything. I mean, it wouldn't float in your bathtub. You know, uh, you know let's, let's get the ark that looks like an ark into their mind. And see, we've got to be very careful when we teach kids the Bible story because we don't want them to to think that bad things happened. Uh, we watched the movie Brother White and he got in trouble teaching the story of Noah's Ark because the kids kind of realized lots of people died. Mm -hmm. you know, lots of people died. Mm -hmm. And you know, of course the kids took it way out there. You know, the, you know, one of them would say, no, they all became bloated corpses. You know, and it was, <laughs> but you know, that's what happened. You know, that is what happened, though we don't want to, we don't usually teach this to the kids. You know, we, we teach the story of David and Goliath, and where do we stop? Goliath falls down with a stone between his eyes, still breathing. And we don't go in that David ran up and chopped his head off. Yeah, I did. But we leave a lot of key things, and sometimes correctly, when you're teaching really young kids, you probably don't want them to know everything that's in that story. But you know, when they start getting to be in preschool, uh, to primary school and, and junior high, mm -hmm. we better get them caught up and tell them the rest of the story because somebody is going to show how silly the story they've been taught is. So we need to be very careful that we give complete stories to these children, that we give complete stories when we teach. It's critical. Just as I talked about some of the things about the armor of God that gets preached out there that make wonderful applications, but they're wrong, are sad. You know, the idea of the armor of God, and, and, we, we, and I've, heard, I've heard hundreds of sermons, well, daily put on the armor of God because you need to be ready for battle every day. Well, as I told you, it says you put it on once and you leave it on. We leave it on in this world. We're not taking the armor of God off until we enter into heaven. And that's the tense of the verbs used on that, put on. Is put it on and keep it on. Okay? Uh, you know, and we have the shield. And, you know, like I say, I've heard so many wonderful, wonderful application stories. You know, God only gives us a front shield, you know, breastplate because... You know, we're not to turn her back, and I can understand why they want to say that, but the, the word for the breastplate is just like every Roman soldier you ever see. It's a clamshell they put on that covers all of your part of their body, except for a very small slit where they tie it together. Okay, wonderful applications and, you know, and all these other things, but they're wrong. And then what happens is if you believe this and you go in and talk to somebody and some skeptic goes, oh, I don't know what you're talking about because this is that Greek word and this is what it means. All of a sudden, you've had your faith shaken up because you've got this bad teaching stuck in your head. And we need to make sure we understand what we believe and why we believe it, because it's very important. And uh, so Egypt was broken, scattered for a period of time. And Ethan's bringing that out. Egypt has been broken. And Eth Egypt has also been broken. If this is as late as it seems to be, and he's in the first king's period, so it is possible that Assyria is becoming a nation, the empire at this time. It could be that he's actually saying that Egypt's broken again, because Egypt fell during that period as well. 
uh, Egypt was not able to contend with the Assyrian Empire, the Syrian Empire, or even the Babylonian Empire. And it didn't handle the Greeks and the Romans. <laughs> okay? At a period of time, they ceased to really be a power. Now, they've never ceased to be a country. They've always become a vassal, like one that paid taxes to somebody else. But they've never ceased, but they've really ceased to be the empire that they were for a long time. And so we see they're destroyed. And it says, verse 11, the heavens are yours and the earth is yours. As for the world and the fullness thereof, you have founded them. Okay, Ethan's really getting going here. It says, God, everything is yours. And this is something we really need to understand. Whatever God gives us, he's giving us basically as a loan. We are stewards for what he gives us. And we're to treat it as stewards. He's not giving us things so that we can expend them on ourselves exclusively. Now, that's not doesn't mean that it's wrong for us to go out and even buy a nice house or a nice car or, or nice clothes. But if we look at that and say, are we spending everything we have on ourselves and not giving to God, we've got a problem. Amen. God is giving us so that we can give to him. Yes. And that doesn't mean we have to give him 100% of what he's letting us be the steward of. And even the stewards didn't have to give 100%, but they had to account for, this is what I used your money for. This is what I did. For you, he might just be giving you those weeds to dig up. Sometimes you enjoy it so much, it probably is. Because I don't know anybody who likes weeding like you do. For you, this is, doing weeds is relaxing and you enjoy doing it. So, you know, it very much could be the God's put those weeds just for you. None of us like them. None of us like them. But I don't, I don't know exactly why. But, you know, it is, it is something that for you, it might very well be that it is for you as a steward because you do it well and you enjoy doing it. Uh, just as for me, he's given me the, the desire and ability to teach, and I enjoy it so much. And I've got pastors that look at me, how can you teach so much at your church and then go out to the prison and teach? Because I, I don't get burdened by it at all. I love doing it. I love the study that goes into teaching. I love the actual teaching. I love to watch the light come on in people's eyes when all of a sudden they learn something new and, and apply it to their life. And it's, it's just a blessing to me. Uh, so this is, this is, every one of us has some gift that God has given us, but he owns everything. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you make a point. Sometimes it's a kind of amazing that what is a blessing to certain people. And I told the prisoners out there, I go, some of you are going to get off. And when you go to a church and you start getting busy in a church and God puts it on your heart to do something, no matter how silly you think it might be, talk to the pastor about it because you might just find that what you think is so simple and maybe even silly would be the greatest blessing that you could bestow upon that person. Mm -hmm. you know, and we need to keep in mind of that because what we find easy and fun may be just part of what our ministry is for something. You know, we get somebody who just loves to clean. You know, how much great pleasure would that be to have somebody who just loves to clean? And said, I just want to clean. Be my guest. Somebody who just wants to weed. Be my guest. As long as he, he gives us those little opportunities. And I've shared with you, before I came here as the pastor, I did a lot of things at College Park. And people used to say, you're doing so much. And I kind of looked around and I'm going, I don't feel like I'm busy. I don't feel like I'm doing that much. 
I learned I was as I tried to replace myself and it took a lot more than one person to do everything. But I was just doing little things that I enjoyed doing and it blessed everybody there because nobody else had to do that. And so my challenge is for everybody, what is it that God is giving you to do that you think is too simple and you, know, you love it too much so it can't be a ministry? Well, it probably is the ministry that you're called to do. If you just step up and do something that you love so much and you just think you're having fun and God's saying, you're ministering. You're ministering to my body while you're having fun. I like the corn stuff. When, when we did the Truth Project, remember that Bill Tackett said that God gave us the Sabbath so that we would stop having so much fun at least one day a week and rest. Yeah. And that, I loved it when he said that. Because if you're really doing what you like to do, sometimes you don't want to stop. Mm-hmm. And God says, no, I want you to stop one day a week and just pay attention to me that day. Very important for us. Because even if you're doing what you love, eventually you will burn out if you don't take time off. And God knows that. So the challenge for us is, what do I love doing? It probably is what, as long as it's not a sin, (laughs) is probably what we're supposed to be doing for God. Okay? So we want to look at that and say, what is it? What have you given me, God? I'm your steward. You've given me things, and I'm going to be a good steward for what you've given me. And use it. And minister. And, you know, this is something that's critical. And I wanted to make sure it's on the, on the, on the, on the recording so it can be out to everybody who listens. They find what it is you like to do and minister that way. And it, well, it will be love because you'll, if you're doing what you want to do, it's going to be enjoyable. You want to share it. You want to do it. And this is something that is important. Most people look and say, well, I enjoy it, so therefore it can't be service to God. That's the wrong attitude. There's a lot of people out there that are afraid to turn to God because they're afraid they're just going to ask them to go to leave everything behind and go become a missionary in the, in the boondock someplace. You know, and that's not the way God does things. I wanted to be a missionary in South America or in the thought about Africa, but preferably South America. And Tommy Thompson said, the reason that God laid on your heart not to change your membership from College Park is being here alone makes them having a missionary in the field. I said, no, no, this is not what I meant by mission. And he said, aren't those children? But we see this, that's actually a pretty good example because when we do the things that we are good, that we're gifted to do, and we're enjoying it, oftentimes it gets into the back of our mind that somehow that isn't serving God because I'm enjoying it. I haven't sacrificed anything. Well, you sacrificed your time. Yes. You, you sacrificed doing something else somewhere else. There's lots of sacrifice involved in it. But you can enjoy what you're doing for God and be serving him in a great manner. Too many people are doing things they don't enjoy in a church because they think they have to do something that that is a sacrifice and non-joyful for them to finally feel like they're serving God. And that is a lie from Satan. Because when you're doing something you don't like doing, eventually you're going to stop because you're going to get frustrated at it. Resent it. Yeah, and resent it. God is saying, I've gifted you. I've given you things you like to do. Use those things for my glory. Right. 
and use him for his glory and you're going to be lifting up everything that goes on and you're going to enjoy serving God you're going to have fun serving God and you know what you're going to have to just say God I need to take a day off because you told me to take a day off because I'm enjoying so much it's important for us to understand we are stewards but we're doing it because he's given us the ability to enjoy and don't think that God's wanting to make you miserable. God does not want to make us miserable, and too many people believe that that's what he wants to do. Well, I've got to be miserable if I'm serving God. No, <laughs> get out there and do something that you enjoy doing. Make it something that is exciting to you. And if it's not God, he'll let you know, but if you're enjoying it and God's gifted you to do it, it's probably just what you're supposed to be doing. Right. And you know, and this is why I share, just like I've heard other pastors say, if you're trying to find out what God wants you to do, go try a few things. Give it six months and you know, see if it's something you want to do. And you find out at the end of six months, boy, this is boring. I don't like doing it. I, I hate coming. Then go find something else in the church to do. And just keep doing that until you find out what it is that God's gifted you to do and that you're enjoying doing. And I want to just stress that. Find something you enjoy to do for God. And, and it is whatever your service will be. It could be the gardening, it could be the painting, it could be the maintenance. You know, there are people who like maintenance things. I don't know why they do it, but they do. I'm not one of them. I've told people I can't nail boards together, I can't draw a straight line, I can't paint a straight line, I can't paint anything that looks like worth, the, worth anything. I'm, this makes perfect. I, I'm very good at dragging things around and providing, providing the tools for you, but when it comes to studying God's word and teaching his word, I can do that really well. And I enjoy doing that all the time. So we want to be able to look at this and say, what is God saying to do? Find that area and enjoy it. And it could be that God's saying, I want you to be the best owner of a business or the best worker at a business so that you can support people doing things. And you know, that can be service to God just as much as anything else out there. If that's, if that's what God has gifted you to do, to be the manager of the of the local business and run the business and do very well and make a good living and give him a good chunk of the money and tithes and offering do it you may also need to use those skills into helping him run the church but you know but we look at those and say god here is what i've got this is what i enjoy doing and then serve god in the process and be able to serve him because everything belongs to him he's founded them Verse 12, the north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon, you have rejoiced in your, shall rejoice in your name. Basically, he's given the points of the compass. He's saying north, south, east, and west. God has created. He's, he's moved them. The north and south are quite obvious, uh, but east and west are, the, are two mountains for the kingdom on the east and the west. So he's going, Hermon and Tabor are the mountains on the east and the west, you know, and you've created everything. So basically he's saying, the four points of the compass, you, you own everything. He's again re reiterating the poetry. You own, you created everything, everything is yours. And by the way, in case you didn't understand that everything belonged to God, everything north, south, east, and west is yours too. Okay. Uh, and again, this is poetry, but, it, but he's kind of repeating, you know. In case you didn't understand that everything belonged to him, everything in the compass range belongs to him. Uh, verse th 13, you have a mighty arm, a and strong is your hand, and high is your right hand. He's, again, praising God. You know, you not only own everything, but you have power. 
And these are, these are the words for power, a strong arm, a mighty arm. A right hand is the approval, he's approve, his approval of things. And it, he's saying, God, you not only own everything, but you're strong, you're strong enough. Many of us would not want to own the whole world. We wouldn't know what to do with it if we had it. I like the line uh, from uh, Flywheel, you know, uh, the guy, the, the, head, the lead guy goes to his wife, she's, they're talking and he goes, would you, do you want the moon? She goes, thought for a moment and go, she goes, I don't know what I'd do with it, might as well leave it where it's at. <laughs> uh, it is kind of a truth though, there's people who want more than they can really handle. And one of the things that I always said about managers is they're going to manage to the level of their incompetency. And every manager has a point where they cannot control anything more or can't even control what they have. And you see it in the business world, uh, you know, they can only run a store that's up to a certain volume and after that they do everything they can to keep it at that volume subconsciously. Uh, they just cannot go any higher. Most of us would not be able to handle the world. God can handle the world. He can handle the universe. He can handle all the other universes that are out there. He has no problem because he's all powerful. So he's, he's sitting here saying, you are the one that's strong enough to do. You are the one that's strong enough to keep. You are the one that's able to do. And it says in verse 14, justice and judgment are your habitation of your throne. Mercy and truth shall go before your face. This is a very powerful sentence, and I don't know if you really picked this one up. Justice and judgment are what surrounds God's throne. This is his holiness, his righteous demands that have to be fulfilled to be able to approach his throne. This is what God really is, holy, righteous, perfect. And then it says, mercy and truth shall go before your face. Jesus is truth. He paid the price so that mercy can be shown to us. And even though he's got righteousness and holiness all around him, before his face is his son. And he looks at everything that he sees through the eyes of his son, through the mercy of his son, through the sacrifice of his son. We are able to come before his throne of justice and judgment because we have accepted Jesus Christ and we have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ and we are able to appear before him and God says, look at that, my beautiful children, my beautiful, perfect children, because he's seeing us through the eyes of the sacrifice of Jesus, through the blood being put onto the mercy seat so that his wrath was satisfied. And we've talked about that. The, the other name for the mercy seat is the seat of propitiation which means literally the seat that wrath has been satisfied. And Jesus put his blood upon the mercy seat in the real heaven so that we could be forgiven. He doesn't see, no, no. Because of mercy, he sees the truth who is Jesus and sees us as perfect. He does not even see how bad it is because he's seeing us through the mercy of Jesus' blood so that he sees by truth and the truth is, we are saint. Justice and judgment. God demands justice and judgment. But because of the mercy that Jesus prepared for us as the truth, God deals with us totally different than he would have to do it if Jesus had not paid the price. And this is why we have to understand, the truth is, we are saints. 
The truth is that we are perfect in God's eyes. We need to start understanding that that's the truth. Because if we want to think that we're just sinners and, and God is just protecting us, we're blind. we bought the lie of Satan. We were sinners, saved by grace. Now we're saints who sometimes sin. Okay? But we are saints. Our flesh is being crucified daily by God, and we're living in Christ and the righteousness of Christ. God has declared us perfect. We can live a perfect life if we would just surrender completely to God and let him crucify the, all of our flesh and quit trying to get our flesh off the altar and live the way we want to. The sad thing is that we don't fully turn into, into his will. And the only two people that seemed to have done that was Elijah and Enoch. And both of them were translated to heaven probably because they were walking as close to God as you possibly could. Because remember, Elijah, when his house was surrounded by the army and his, and, his, and his servant is so freaked out, and he goes, God, open his eyes so he can see things the way they really are. And he looks out, and there's the army of angels around the army that's surrounding them that I believe Elijah knew was there the whole time because of how close he was walking to God. And God said, just look out there. You don't have anything to worry about. They can't come at you without... without me taking care of them first. Wouldn't it be great to be able to walk so close to God that that's the way it is? But you know, we're getting closer and closer to the time of the rapture and there may just be a time when we all of a sudden just disappear. Just disappear from this world, just like Enoch and Elijah, and go to heaven. Why? Because God is faithful to his promise and to keep us safe. And when it's time for the restraining of the church to be withdrawn so that God and the Holy Spirit can work on the people, we will disappear. And you realize, do you realize how much restraining pressure the church has put on this world? Even as, even as we're getting less and less influential, there's still the church restraining evil because we're willing to call it evil. We're willing to call it wrong. We're getting to be a remnant and a very small group that's doing it, and that's why more and more evil is flourishing, but we still are the salt in this world that's keeping evil from totally taking over. When the church is removed, I want you to understand, the Holy Spirit is not going to be removed. Okay, there's a lot of people who teach that the Holy Spirit disappears at that time too. There's 144,000 Jewish evangelists that need the Holy Spirit to touch people's hearts. It's the church that's going to be pulled, pulled away, and the Holy Spirit will now start working with the Israelites again and will minister. And remember when we did Revelation, at one point there's an angel flying around in the, skull, the skies declaring, declaring the gospel, proving to us that God didn't need us in the first place. You know, he could have always just sent the angels, and that's what I said this morning. If there wasn't a need for us to give the gospel out to people, when we got saved, God would just take us home and say, okay, you're not needed on this earth anymore. No, we're here so that we can give the gospel. We're here so that the salt and the light will shine and be, people will be convicted of their sins. Even though they don't like it, they'll be convicted of their sins. And when we're pulled out and darkness will start to reign, and darkness will start to have a more thorough run 
that it, than it has right now. It'll not have a complete run. And want, want to understand, I heard a preacher tell me, uh, speak on the radio the other day saying that, God, uh, that Satan can do whatever he wants to the, to the lost people. That is a lie. Now, God doesn't protect them as much as he protects his children. Right. But if God didn't tell Satan he couldn't kill them, every single person would be dead in a snap. Because he hates God enough that much, and he says, well, if I kill them, they can't come to God. Right. So every single lost person is protected by God's sovereignty that says, Satan, you can't kill them. Mm -hmm. Now, he says, Satan, you can do a lot of things to them, and there's still going to be things they can't do. He can't make them so sick that they can't live. And you know, there's things that Satan is not allowed to do, and it's still God is sovereign. He's yeah. in charge. God will do what it takes to get people to try to turn to him. And that's the whole book of Revelation. Mm -hmm. Every one of the things that God does during that period of time is not just for punishment. There is a punishment element to it. But it is to draw people and say, turn to me before it's too late. Come to me. You didn't listen to my love. Let's see if we can drive you to me. And he's going to give them what they wanted, the punishment side of things, to say, come. Come to me. I'm still here. I'm still loving you. I still want you. But if you're not going to listen, there's going to be the harshness to it. And this is going to be a terrible time. That will be a terrible time. But our goal as Christians is let's give the gospel out. Let's make sure that these people understand. And there's a lot of people that say you don't, you don't want to be scaring people into heaven. And my answer is why not? Yeah, really. That's right. Why not? You know, I want people to know that if they don't accept Jesus Christ, they are going to hell, and hell is not a place that they want to go. And if they don't like that statement, tough. Because I want to be able to say, like Paul, I told you. Now, I will never be able to say, like Paul, that he had nobody's blood on his hand, that he told everybody, because I'm not quite that, that vocal. And there's a lot of people that I know that I should have told that I didn't. But I also tell people, and they need to hear the gospel. And we need to share the gospel. And we need to be bold in sharing the gospel and willing to, if need be, scare people into heaven. Because the alternative is terrible. The alternative is hell. And I'm not, I'm not going to say that it's something you don't want to do. Jonathan Edwards preached the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Okay, he's saying you're, you've got a bad thing ahead of you. You're headed to hell. Get right with the Savior. This is something that's important for us to understand. Jesus talked a lot about hell to the people. And he talked about hell quite frequently. And he did not sit there and say, well, I don't want to scare these people. Mm -hmm. yeah. His goal was to scare them. You're, if, you don't, if you don't respond, your, your result is that you are going to be judged for eternity judged for eternity. That's something we need to understand. This is not some place where they go for a short time until they've suffered enough to, to go to heaven, like, as many, many will say. It's not something that you can be prayed out of. You can have somebody give you enough money in your name or, or baptize as some of the places do for the dead. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to say the prayer for, for my, my grandfather who died and I'm going to be baptized for him so that he can be removed from hell. Right. No, that is not what God says. They've made their choice. They get stuck with their choice. It's an eternal choice. Once you've crossed from this life into the spiritual realm, your choice is done. You've made it for eternity. 
Good news for those, those of us that are Christians. We cannot do something in eternity that's going to get us kicked out of eternity with God. Because he says you're going to be perfect. You are right. You have eternal life. We will not probably have a free choice at that point because we have made our free choice here. We're just going to have the heart that's going to want to serve God just as the angels. And I will tell you, I believe the angels at some point had a free will. They had some kind of existence where they hid, here's your sin. They made their choices and they're stuck with their choices now. Satan is stuck with, and the demons are stuck with their, their consequences. The other angels are doing God's bidding and I don't believe they have a choice at this point in their, in their existence. And we will be forever with God doing whatever it is he wants us to do for, for eternity. And if he decides he's going to make another, another world, we may be the angels in that world serving, serving those people. Who knows? Okay. Who knows what our future holds as God goes forward in, in whatever he has in plan? He does. We don't. And what does it mean to serve him? I don't know what it's going to mean to serve him in heaven. I don't have a clue what it's going to mean to serve him in heaven. But we are going to be above the angels. We're the bride of Christ. Doesn't mean we're going to be God, but we're going to be as close to it as possible. We're his children. And all that that means when we get to heaven, that we are special in heaven. And the angels don't even understand completely what's going on. All they know is they're taking care of all of us stupid, stupid humans that make all kinds of problems and, and get redeemed and we repent and God forgives us and covers our sins. And they know that eventually that we're going to rule over them. Kind of an amazing thought. They take care of us now and we'll be above them in the, in the future. But you know what? Paul understood that mentality because he knew that the children of the Romans, if they were high enough to have slaves, they put a slave over the child. Mm -hmm. And that slave controlled the child. Yes. <laughs> controlled the heir to the, to, the, to, the, to the whole family fortune. And they could tell them what to do, what not to do, discipline them to, to a degree to make sure they stayed out of trouble and their job was to make sure they stayed out of trouble and didn't hurt the family name which meant they may, oftentimes would have to discipline them and then at some point that child became the adult and the whole role switched and they were in charge of the servant that had been taking care of them and were no longer under the control of that servant Paul understood that when he was looking at that and saying we as humans at some point will be above the angels who are, are right now the ones that care for us and protect us and keep us out of some trouble and take the beating in the spiritual realm as for the battles that are going on. Well, we talked about that this morning. We hide in Christ and he's the one that takes the, takes the battle and the, and the hits from the battle. He's already taken them. And you know, I'm kind of wondering what it's going to look like. With, you know, and I really do think God's going to show us what was happening from a spiritual point of view when he shows us what actually was going on around us and that would scare us if we knew what was going on around us. All the attacks that are being blocked, each of the angels that are taking the, the flaming dart that's coming our way so that we don't get hit by it, just as the... Secure, secret service are supposed to do for the president where they jump in front of the president and take the bullet and usually do. I would rather thank them a lot. Well, believe me, I would, we're going to be over them, but I'm sure we're going to say thank you. I'm sure we'll say thank you because we're going to be like God and have that love and that attitude. 
Isn't there a possibility that it, in the being over them, it's not the way we perceive being over them, but rather we will be meshed together to serve God? We are the apple of God's eye and the bride of Christ, so we will be over them. Now, does that mean we'll lord it over them and, and treat them bad? No, I do not believe that. There will be some form of love and care for them in return. Just as the child who had been raised by that slave, I'm sure, always respected that, that slave that raised them. Angels, I don't believe, are going to be pushed to this great subservience and we're going to boss them around and, and all of that, but they will be subservient to us. And just saying that somebody's subservient, this is what we talk, we talk about submission. True submission doesn't mean that the person above you is beating on you and, and belittling you and making you feel like garbage. It's they're in a position where they care for you, they love you, and they're supporting you. And knowing that maybe they have to make a decision that you may or may not like once in a while, but also realizing that they're the one that's going to be held accountable for it. And so I think in, when we see this relationship with the angels being subservient to us, it's not one of those things that says, we're gonna go in there and beat them with whips and chains and, and put them in their place. You know, we're gonna say, we love you, thank you. We'll probably be saying thank you for protecting me, you know, during this and my family during this and, you know, and, you know, treating them with the respect that is due their position. But knowing also that we're the bride of Christ, we are now equal up there in the family of God and they have that subservient spot. As we look at this last verse that we read, you know, God is dwelling with his righteousness and his judgment and his holiness. And it's such a wonder that Jesus said, yes, I will pay for these crazy humans to, so that they can be one with us and you'll be able to look at them in mercy. We, you know, and I've said this over and over, it is such an amazing, I cannot get over the idea that God, knowing that we were going to sin, knowing that it was gonna cost him, life. cost his own life in, the, in, in Jesus, and as I've shared with you, when Jesus became sin and he had to break fellowship with Jesus, Jesus took the physical beating and the emotional beating, which was worse to him than the physical beating, but God and the Holy Spirit took that emotional beating as well. They had to separate themselves from Jesus for that period of time, and they took pain to buy us back as well. It wasn't just Jesus who took this pain. The Father and the Son had to turn their back on themselves, mm -hmm. on themselves, and break fellowship that had never been broken for all of eternity and felt the pain of our salvation. Now, they didn't fit, take the physical pain and the death and all of that, but they felt the pain of separation. And I've shared, you know, t you know when I got the revelation of that pain that they went through, that is hard. I don't know why God would be willing to do that kind of pain to break a relationship that had never been broken in all of eternity. And he was willing to make that price, pay that price. The Father and the Holy Spirit paid a price for our redemption, as well as Jesus. Because they had to turn their back on Jesus, somebody that they'd, do, that they'd been in perfect fellowship with for all of eternity. 
And they said, yes, we'll go ahead and create man. And Je Jesus agreed, yes, I'll go, I will go be the one that takes the bulk of the pain. And they still created us. And Jesus went to the cross willingly. Mm -hmm. you know, and that's something that blows my mind too, because with all the abuse he was going, the human side of him would definitely say that it's not worth it. Right. His spiritual side never said it's not worth it. At any time, Jesus could have said, Father, they're not worth it. Just bring me home. Mm -hmm. I am not going to go all the way through with this. And you know what? It would not have been wrong for him to do that. Because they are the creator. They could have done whatever they wanted. And yet he went and he paid the complete punishment for us. And he created us knowing that he was going to do that. That is the part that really just, just is so unbelievable to me that he did this knowing the cost. Knowing what it was going to be before he ever created us. And he knows what we're going to be doing in the next 20 years, too. <laughs> he knows everything. He knows who's going to come to him and who's not going to come to him. Even though he's going to hold his hand out to them. And he knows each person who's going to reject him. And knows who's going to accept him. That's All of this stuff is just an amazing thought when we come down to it. And yet, because he allows them yeah, I know. <laughs> and sets them up. And this is what we were saying this morning. Everything that comes our way, God knows and is allowed. And you know what? As planned from the beginning of the, before the beginning of the world, he had already planned what he was going to allow to, to happen to us tomorrow, next year, how much longer we have to live. It already has the plan on what was going to happen. And this is, the, this is what's important, is all of this stuff God knows. He already knew it. It's all his. He knows what he's putting us through. And he's doing it so that we will quit lying to ourselves and quit telling, saying, I believe something that I don't believe, to prove to, to, the, to ourselves what we believe and what we don't believe, and to strengthen us for the next test that he's going to send us. Be so that we'll be stronger for the next test, which, by the way, will be harder than the test we're in today that seems hard. But because we've passed the first test, it won't be, it won't be as hard as it would have been without that. But Jesus shed blood is what allows us to be able to come before the Father. And that is just an amazing thing. Because of his shed blood, we can go before the Father and just talk to him. Because he looks down and he says, there's my perfect children standing there in front of me. And we are able to talk to him. And the rest of the world can't. But you know, we need to have that very strong understanding. And, and I've said this before, the verse that scares me the most in all of the scriptures is that he, he said, many in that day will say, Lord, Lord, didn't die. And he's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. It's not a bunch of rules that we follow. It is not a bunch of... If I just beat my soul and spirit into shape, I'll be okay with God. It is a total surrender to God and putting on Christ righteousness and being in a relationship with God. That relationship is what's important. That I know that I know I'm saved, not because of things that happen to me, not because of good or bad that happens to me, but I am in a relationship with Jesus that I know 
that I am in that relationship with him. He talks to me. He's growing me. He's perfecting me. And that is the other purpose for these trials that come our way is so that we can become more and more righteous as he works out the, the bad in us and brings it to our attention because, again, we have this habit of lying to ourselves and thinking that we're better than we are. You know, I don't. No. Well, we all have that tendency in some area of our life to say, even though I may realize that I'm a sinner, there's areas in our life where we go, I've got this, God, and I'm, I'm pretty okay. good in this area. And God says, okay, let's show you how good you are in this. He'll work with us to say, I want to show you. I want to show you who you are. I want you to really understand who you are. And, you know, and this is what I shared with people you know, all the time. If anybody, when I, was in, uh, when I was a teenager, had ever said that there's going to be a time when you didn't go to church and read your Bible, I'd have laughed at them and say, there's absolutely no way that would ever happen. Then I got so busy in the work world and slipped away from God. And God's saying, see? <laughs> see? We all have areas in our life where we think, I've got this. I, I'm not going to fall in this area. Or, I've overcome this sin, and I haven't sinned in this area in 10 years. And there's no way I'd fall for this sin. And God says, okay, let's see. Then he throws you a harder test. Yeah, he can send you a really hard test that says, well, I really want that cigarette. I really want that drink. I really want this experience that you thought you had victory over. And God says, see? You know, confess, get back, get right and start living back in the victory, but realize I'm the one that's made you victorious, not you. And this is something that's very important that we need to fully understand. Any victory we have, if it is real victory, is through Christ. He breaks the bondage. He gives us the victory. And that is the victory. That really is the only victory we have. He breaks the bondage. He gives us victory. And if somehow we think it's something I did, you're going to fall. Number one, you're not going to put a guard on that part of your life and you're going to slip up real easy. We want to be aware God loves us so much he doesn't want us in bondage. We're saints. He's broken our bondage. Remember when we did the Truth Project, Adele Tackett was talking about those that were unsaved were prisoners, prisoners of war in a battle that they're rejecting God. They're in bondage. They're in, they're in chains. We as Christians have had our bondage taken we have had our clothes changed from the rags of righteousness to the righteousness of Christ. And he's given us victory. We just need to live in that victory that he has given us. Not that somehow I think I have accomplished those victories. Because I can guarantee you, just like you say, you know, if I think I've got some victory, I'm going to find I'm falling. Mm -hmm. And we usually, as we walk with God, come to the realization that all our victory is in him. But there's, there's those dark places in our life that we somehow in the back of our mind think, you know, I've done. I would never fall for this, you know, for, for, this, for this activity. You know, I, would, I, would, I would never, you know, be, you know, fall, you know. And this is something that a lot of pastors have fallen into when they get into an adulterous affair. I can guarantee you most of them have always thought in their life, you know, never, never do that. I would never do that. You know, I would never commit adultery. I love my wife too much. I love God too much. I, I honor him too much. And it's so easy for that to be totally changed over. Because you get somebody who just pays a little bit of attention to you that you're not getting at home and it feels good. And you develop that friendship. And then you start slipping a little further into that. And all of a sudden, before you know it, you're kind of a little far into it. And, you're going, and you may or may not realize where you're at.
and it doesn't take long for Satan to just get that little bit in there. You didn't think you were gonna fall for this? Let's show you. Let's show you how easy it is to walk into, walk into sin. This is why we need a guard on our heads. We need a guard on our thinking. We put, we put the helmet of salvation and let God protect our thinking. We get into the word of God and start thinking like him. We put on the righteousness of Christ. We sink into Christ and we stay in him. We run to the fortress that we've been talking about at other places and say, God, I'm just going to hide here while the storm blows against you. Yeah. People, people will say, well, I don't need a crutch. I don't need God for a crutch. And I'm going to thank God for the crutch. Yes. <laughs> thank God for the crutch. Because I, I, I don't know what your crutch is. I guarantee you that you have a crutch. It may not be a very good crutch. It could be alcohol, drugs, uh, power, uh, your own self-righteousness. You know, you, every single person has a crutch that they're leaning on, that they think is their crutch. And to watch them have it knocked out from underneath them at the, at the time they least expect it. I, I'll take God as my crutch anytime. I will go hide in him and as much as he wants me to hide into him, which is all the time. And I want to hide into him all the time. I want to stay inside him. I want to stay with the mighty walls around me so that the storm beats upon him and doesn't beat upon me. And I'll just hide. I'll hide in the righteousness of Christ and let the world bound on him a little bit and walk with him and walk with him as he walks. Because I can guarantee you, and we've all experienced it, the day that we think we can handle it and we crawl out from underneath the fortress and, and we go, come on, Satan. I, I'm strong enough to take you, and we get knocked down on the first swipe. And it's not even him that does it. Right. You know, he just sends one of his little demons along and says, I'll just knock him down a little bit. Right. And then we come crawling back, bloodied and beaten by the experience, back into God. And God says, oh, you're back. Thank you. Come on. Let me clean you up, put you back at the table, because I'm going to accept you as my child. But maybe you don't want to go back outside again and, and get beat up. You know, we want to keep that bound and keep it understood that it is all Christ and it is always Christ. It is always Christ that keeps us. It's him that gives us the strength to do anything. It's him that gives us the words to speak to the lost, lost world. All we got to do is be willing to open our mouth. And it's amazing. It is amazing when you start sharing the gospel with people and the spirit takes over. And then you kind of step back and go, okay, I'm not talking anymore, you know, and you're just, it's your voice, it's you, it's you that opened up your mouth, and it's God speaking through you, just as he promised the disciples, don't worry about what you're going to say when they drag you in front of the courts, the Spirit will answer. Right. And when we're witnessing to people, the Spirit will take over. All we do is we open up our mouth and we say, hi. <laughs> You know, where, where, where will you spend eternity? And the next thing you know, you're, you're talking to somebody and you're, and you're hearing the Holy Spirit use your voice. Those of us who teach, having that happen frequently where we're starting to teach and all of a sudden we realize it's not us speaking. We're, we're kind of stepped back in our own brain, listening to ourselves speak and wondering where it came from. God is the one who does everything. And the more we realize, the better off we're going to be. He does everything. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you care for us and that you love us. We ask that you go with us and show us what you would have us to show. Let us open our mouths and speak. Let us stay hidden in you all the time. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.